0: Okay, uh, well, we've been kind of hit and miss the last, this last month. We we had a lesson, then we had a break uh, where we had a guest speaker, and then we had another lesson, and then last week we had uh, Dr. Mortensen here from uh, Answers in Genesis, and uh, uh, we talked... Uh, Where we studied uh, a lot about the Book of Genesis last week and creation and all that sort of stuff, and uh, I don't know about you guys, but I really enjoyed that time last week, and uh, and it was particularly uh, edifying as Rick was praying. It was particularly edifying because we've been spending so much time in Genesis the last. We won't talk about how long a year and a half, two years, however long we've been doing this, (laughs) but. but just uh just reflecting on the importance of the book of genesis and and I don't know if it, if it, if this is original with uh Dr. Mortensen or not but uh, cuz I think I've heard this quote before but but the thing that stuck out to me that he said that probably summarized everything is that if adam was a mythological creature then jesus is a mythological uh savior uh how did it go? Jesus is a mythological savior, saving us from a mythological sin and giving us a mythological hope. And uh, and <clears throat> I appreciated that summary of the importance of those first chapters of Genesis. So, but we are in Genesis, and uh, today we are in the middle of chapter twenty-five. And uh, just by way of review, a couple weeks ago, we had. Uh, 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 started on the Taladot of Isaac at the beginning of, or there in the middle of chapter uh, 25, uh, actually beginning in verse 19, where he says, now these are the records or the Taladot of the generations of Isaac. Okay. And so we, uh, this is, I believe now, the eighth Taladot of Genesis. uh, And uh, this particular Taladot or account or record uh, of the generations of Isaac, who is it actually about? Okay, it's about his descendants. Particularly, uh, most uh, predominantly, it's about the story of Jacob. So, for the next number of weeks, we're going to be looking at the life and the story of Jacob, and it's a very, uh, <laughs> it's a very potent story. Uh, uh, to me, it's a very emotional story. It's filled with a lot of pathos. <laughs> uh it's filled with a lot of theological significance, and uh, so we'll we'll want to delve into it uh, carefully and, and try and really glean from it all that the Lord has for us in this story. What do you remember that we talked about uh, there when we looked a couple weeks ago at verses 19 through, I think, about 26?
1: Well, Isaac was about forty. Okay. And he mm-hmm.
0: And then he prayed for her to conceive, and she had this, this got the double whammy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Isaac must have a pretty effective prayer life because he got a double portion. <laughs> That's right. So, so she was, uh, but she was barren for a while, wasn't she? How long was she barren? 20 years, okay? It's a long time to be barren. Uh, one thing I, I I thought about when I was working on that lesson, and and I don't think we actually talked about it in our time together, but uh, but this issue of barrenness just comes up repeatedly in Scripture, doesn't it? You notice that how often it comes up? We've already dealt with it extensively in the story of Sarah and how she was barren for. Many, 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 many years, and and then finally God uh, gave her a child, and then we have the story of of Isaac and Rebecca here, and it really doesn't talk much about her barrenness. It just kind of mentions it, but it's you know it's twenty years, and you think about it from her perspective and from Isaac's perspective, the scripture just kind of you know moves right on past it uh, because there are other things to talk about there in that particular story, but. But then so, and then we account, we encounter the issue of barrenness again with jacob when when uh, with Jacob and Rachel, and Rachel is barren for a time, and that 's a tremendous struggle for her uh, and we have uh, we have uh, the story of uh, of the parents of uh, Samuel and uh, her his mother's name is uh, Hannah, is her his mother 's name and 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 she 's barren for a period of time, and she 's longing for children and and in the new testament we have the story of uh, of uh, of elizabeth the mother of john the baptist and she's barren for many many years and reaches old age before she finally has a child and and when you think about those various stories it's it's just clear that that god is doing something in the lives of these couples and in the lives of these women and he's working in their lives and he's accomplishing something in their lives. But one of the ways he's doing it is through their barrenness. And I just thought about how oftentimes in our lives we have seasons of barrenness. And, and they really are oftentimes inexplicable. I mean, how do you explain to a Rebecca after 10 or 15 years, why is she barren? How do you explain to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, why she has no children after these many, many, many years? I mean, these periods or seasons of barrenness in our lives are oftentimes inexplicable and yet somehow they, somehow they serve the purposes of God. And we think about these various examples that I just cited and, and at the end of each one of these seasons of barrenness, what do we have? We have the, we have the gift of a, of a world-changing life. You know, and uh, and so it was just it was just instructive to me to see this issue of barrenness in our lives and in our experiences from God's perspective rather than from our own perspective. There, there can be other reasons for barrenness besides uh, the reasons that we see in these particular accounts that I've cited, and uh, but the difficulty is we oftentimes don't know what that reason is. And the key, I think, to confronting those times of barrenness in our lives is to walk by faith and just have confidence in God that ultimately uh, weeping may la- last for a night but a shout of joy comes in the morning as it did in each of those cases well what else do you remember Yeah.
2: related to that because I wasn't here but probably talk about so you're probably completely off track I probably am okay. <laughs> in verse 21 it says I didn't pray on behalf of his wife. Mm-hmm. It makes it sound like he waited around 20 years, prayed one time, and then had a baby. And you know, the fact that it seems the scripture is a real master of understatement. <laughs> uh, I just can't imagine it happening.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, we actually did talk about that. Yeah, I, I don't think it did either. Yeah. I, I assume he prayed many times. Yeah. <clears throat> But like you say, we don't know. We really don't know. And maybe he was like some of us husbands. Maybe he was a little dense. (laughs) It might have taken him 20 years to wake up to what his wife really needed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, but I I assumed that he had prayed often and long. but, But we don't know that. And that's, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So, what else? What was Rebecca's problem in this story, aside from the fact initially that she didn't have any children. Well in twenty two, when the babies were
1: struggling, she said, if it is so, why then am
3: I the sex? So I mean she prayed
0: for a baby all the time and asked Well, why did you do this if she's looking for that's the way it is? Isn't that the way it is? We God answers our prayers and then we go Lord why why like this? You know this is not what I had in mind, and we talked about this that 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 the thing that 's going on in her is 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 not just normal discomfort from having children, okay this is something so unusual that she 's unable to get an explanation for it. You know, from all the other women around her who have babies and other women she knows who's had twins. They can't answer this question. There's only one place she can get the answer to this incredible discomfort and pain that she's feeling. And where is that? God. She has to go to God to get an answer for this tremendous turmoil, this struggle. And we talked about uh, the fact that the word there actually is a word that that represents a great deal of violence. So these, t- these two twins, these two boys were really going at it uh, with one another, even while they were still inside uh, their mother's womb. And, and it created no small amount of pain and discomfort. And I think even fear in her mind that she was going to not only lose the children, but lose her own life as well. She's quite distressed. Why am I this way? Why is this happening to me, God? Why Why after all these years and then my husband prays and you answer his prayer and you give me this, children, why is it ending like this? And she doesn't understand this. So she goes to God and she asks, and what does God tell her? Come on, folks. It's an open book exam there. It's right in front of you. Okay. Well, that'd cause you some discomfort, wouldn't you? She <laughs> yeah, had two nations inside of you. Yeah, she's got. So he. So she gets this oracle from God. She gets this word from God that she actually has these. She has these two nations inside of her. She has these twins inside of her. And I and I assume from although it doesn't say it explicitly in the oracle that she has twins. I, am, I assume she understands that from the way the oracle is, is spoken uh, to her. We have no idea how she got this oracle. We don't even know. What it means when it says she went to the Lord to pray and ask the Lord, she might have gone to uh, she might have gone to an intermediary some someone functioning as a priest. She could have gone to someone like Melchizedek or even possibly to Abraham or her father in law. Uh, she might have even gone to her husband Uh, we don't know how she got this oracle but God speaks to her and he tells her through uh, however whatever means he used or whether he spoke to her directly in a vision or however we don't know but God speaks to her and tells her that she has uh, in her body in her womb she has these two nations or these two peoples and and that one would be stronger than the other and that the older would serve the younger it's a particularly profound and theologically significant prophecy that is uttered here uh, by the Lord. Uh, We don't really know for sure whether it is prescriptive or descriptive. Okay, we don't know for sure here whether whether uh, God is simply explaining to her what will be and that he knows it will be or whether God is actually dictating that this is the way it will be. It's really not clear from the passage uh, as, as to which it is. But but he speaks this. And so she has this word. She has this understanding from God. And then the twins are born. And what's unusual about the birth of these twins? Okay, yeah. So the first one comes out, and he's all hairy all over. Now, that's a little unusual. I've seen a lot of ugly babies in my day, but Esau. (laughs) I'm sorry, folks, but I just don't think newborn babies are always (laughs) that attractive, and I've had five of them. Um, But um, they get real cute real quick, but yeah. I've been there when all five of mine were born.
3: <laughs>
0: but at any rate, Esau was, uh, uh, was Harry all over. And, and uh, so they call him Esau, which means hairy. OK, eventually he'll get a different name. But initially he's called Esau. And then uh, uh, and then after he comes out, then comes his younger brother, younger by a matter of moments, uh, Jacob. And, and as we mentioned, Jacob has a grab on Esau's heel. And so uh, Jacob is named Jacob because the name means what? Okay, it has that, that element in it. Supplanter, heel grabber. Okay, it's the idea of somebody who gr- reaches out and grabs somebody else's heel and overthrows them. So it has that whole idea of, of supplanting and deception and overthrow and, and that sort of thing to it. And as it turns out, Uh, It's a pretty accurate description of the character of this guy. And he's going to live a long time with that personality, with that character trait, before God finally manages to get through through to him and break that will and break that stubbornness and break that self-sufficiency and teach him to rely on God. So this is going to be a painful series of studies that we go through as we look at the life of Jacob.
2: God has something in the name of me. I know he did. Ultimately, but it's not like
0: they were moms going
2: spend all that nine months picking names for their kids. I and mean, it's like these guys were named right when they were born. Yeah. It's like, well, what do they look
0: like? Adam, uh, <coughs> it's kind of strange. It it's strange to us, isn't it? Yeah. I I, I, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, I tend to think that there was some something providential in the selection of many of the names in Scripture. And so, yeah, I would say Probably, yeah, in some way. I don't know how that works. almost like God did and the
2: people saw it in angel.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: They wanted to be called Esau and Jacob,
0: so when set it up, where they call him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, well, let's pick up the story then. We're going, to, we're going to work on the last few verses of the chapter today, beginning in verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. When When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. And thus, Esau despised his birthright. Well, we're looking here today in this passage, we're looking at at uh, one of two foundational or key events in this whole uh, uh, the whole issue of Esau and his inheritance. We'll have this one and then in a few weeks, we'll look at the issue of the of the stolen uh, blessing uh, it's it's easy as we look at this story and think about this story to kind of lapse into pop, pop psychology. So I'm going to try to resist that, but but it is but it does bring up a lot of issues that we that we deal with in our lives and we deal with in our temperaments and our personalities and that sort of thing. So some of those things we'll try to reflect on without degenerating into a, a pop, pop psychology session here today. Uh, I should point out that we really don't know at this point the age of the twins. Okay, I I assume at this point that they're probably young. They're probably I would, you know, guess maybe in their late teens or their early 20s. They're obviously at a a sufficient age where Esau is able to live out in the field for for prolonged periods of time. Okay, so uh, so they're they're at least somewhat mature uh, physically. Uh, obviously, we have some question about their emotional and psychological maturity, but they are at least somewhat physically mature, it appears. Uh, and, and one of the things that strikes me about this story is is assuming that they are relatively young, that they that they're maybe in their 20s or, or so. What's striking to me is is that at this at this young age that they can make such life altering decisions that just set in concrete the rest of their lives you know i think about when i was that age you think about when you were that age and and we make decisions and we think we think we've got the world by the tail and we can just you know and and so we just you know, we're impulsive oftentimes or whatever and we make these life altering decisions and we have no realization that decisions that we're making When we're 20, are still going to be affecting us when we're 60. But I'm living out the results in my life, and so are you, of decisions that we made when we were in our 20s. And some of those were wise decisions, uh, fortuitously or somehow, by the grace of God, they turned out to be good decisions. And some of them turned out to be kind of stupid decisions. And we still live with the consequences of that. That's a pretty sobering thing to think about. Here's Esau, he's a young man and he's about to make a life altering decision and he has no clue that it's gonna set his life in concrete. And there's gonna be a point in his life we're gonna see when he regrets what he did here. Yeah.
3: I can't help that
1: when I look at this and I remember the parents that they favor it. Yeah. Yeah. And I wondered, just reading this, if there had not been favoritism shown by the law and the dad, if Esau coming into the garden that his brother wouldn't have given him and Solomon would have searched him, that instead, because the favoritism played out, that it proved to be divine.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is an important subject, and I do want to get to that. Okay, we will talk about that issue of favoritism, Uh but I want to think about some other things first. Uh, so we know that Isaac had these uh, father, these twins when he was how old? 60. 60 OK, uh, how old was Abraham when Isaac was born? Ninety-nine uh, Or 100. Yeah, he was 99 when he got the promise, the final promise. And then the children were actually born when he was 100 years of age. OK, mm-hmm. <coughs> so that means that Abraham is how old when the children are born. 160. Good math here. Okay, folks. Uh, Okay, how old did Abraham live? 175. 175. Okay, so, you know, this is something that we know. It doesn't really talk about it in the text here, but, but God has given us this information that Abraham lived to be 175. The children were born. These twins, his grandsons, were born when he was 160. That means... That he had 15 years to enjoy the life of his grandsons, okay, as they're growing up. And uh, Bruce Waltke points this out in, in his commentary, and, and I think it's a it's a provocative thought to me to, to contemplate the idea of these twins growing up on their grandfather's knee. Now, if you put your place, you put yourself in Abraham's place, and you've got these. Grandsons and they're three and four and five and six years old as they're growing up, and and you're having an opportunity to to relate to these grandkids. What are what are you doing with them? You're Abraham. You keep them five. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping them from fighting. Keeping them from fighting. Well, that's that's mom and dad's job. The grandparents they don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but yeah, they probably probably a little that going on. What do you think he was doing? He what stories? Yeah. yeah, can you imagine? Can you imagine him sitting there with those twins on his knees some dark night and pointing up to the stars of the heavens and telling them about God's promise that he would have descendants like the stars of the sky? And all those stories of all those years of wandering around in Canaan with nothing but a promise in a land of and as an alien in a land of promise and wandering about and, and telling them this, this land is our land. God's going to give us this land. And he's going to multiply us. And here is here are our Esau and Jacob as little children hearing these stories from their grandfather. And yet they receive them in two entirely different ways. And that's what stands out in this story. is how different is the way these two young men receive the stories of the promise of God. And Esau, he's the firstborn. So, so it's all his by right. Right By the law of primogeniture, it's his. He gets the promise. He gets the blessing. He gets the descendants. He gets the wealth. He gets all of that. How does he respond to that? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah.
2: Jacob, right,
3: he's probably better at
0: and, and and, you know, and I think we see that that kind of I don't know if bitterness is the word, but but certainly the sense of, of being maybe in a sense cheated out, you know, and, and I think we see that there at the end of Jacob's life when he's blessing the sons of Joseph and Joseph brings his sons to him. And what is what does Jacob do? He crosses his arms and he puts the greater blessing on the younger child. Remember that? Why does he do that? cause he's thinking back in his own life what a bummer it is to be the youngest kid you yeah. know and and so here he's he's sitting on his granddad's lap if you can imagine that and he's hearing all this stuff but he's going where do I fit into this I want a part of that I want part of that promise I want part of that blessing now Jacob being Jacob how does he resolve the problem <coughs> Manipulation, deceit, craftiness, supplanting. That's going to be the way he operates his whole life for many, many years. And the thing that strikes me about the life about Jacob is how desperately he wants the promise of God. How desperately he wants the blessing of God in his life. But his problem is he keeps trying to get it from other people. And it's not until he's returning to Canaan and he encounters the pre-incarnate Christ on the bank of a river that he finally realizes this is where I get the promise of God. But up until that point, he keeps trying to get it from men, you know. And, And it's such a... It's such an analogy to our own lives, isn't it? It's allegorical of our own lives. Isn't that how often we live our lives? We want the promise of God. We want the blessings of God. We want all the goodness that God has to offer. But where do we go for it? We try and get it from our husbands. We try to get it from our wives. We try to get it from our kids. We try to get it from our parents. We try to get it from our pastor. We try to get it from our school teacher, We try to get it from anywhere. And sometime, at some point in our life, we have to come to a point where we realize only God gives us promise. It's the only place we can get it. Yeah, Rick. You suppose that Jacob grew up hearing about
2: this prophecy, and he said, "Well, I'm going to take matters in my own hands make this
3: happen."
0: Yeah, I absolutely think he did. I, I cannot help but believe that his mother told him about that oracle, <laughs> and and so he's living with that in his mind. Okay. Uh, now, the scriptures make a big thing out of the difference between these two guys. It really contrasts them. What is Esau like? Excuse me.
2: He's a manly man. Yeah.
3: He's
0: yeah. of a manly guy. Yeah. He's what he's he's what we in our culture think of as the manly guy.
3: That
2: is kind of are for their
0: gender? That is a cultural. okay. Now I'm going there. I'm going there, Jim. <laughs> It is a it's In our culture, it's the way we, you know, it's you know, it's the quarterback. You know, it's the you know, it's the right tackle on the football team. That's a man's man. You know, and that's the way he saw us. Okay, he's hairy. He's wild. He 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 lives out of doors. You know, he doesn't even bother living in tents. You know Okay, ladies. Can you imagine what this guy's really like? He hasn't had a shower in three weeks. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Mike is really glad to hear that, Ginger. (laughs) (laughs) But he really, but, but there's something else about him. He's impulsive. And he's crass. And I'm gonna show you why I think he's crass, okay, but he's crass, okay. And but he's he's kind of a he's kind of the image of the of of just the guy who's his he's his own man. He's his own man. Okay. Well in contrast to that we have Jacob. What's Jacob like? He's a mommy boy. That's <laughs> exactly what I have it in my notes here. He's a mommy's boy. I I have it written. That's what we think of him, don't we? Well, so is Esau, because Esau comes back in and cooks his wild game for his dad. So, so, uh, so Esau also is apparently a pretty good cook. But
2: well, I think you know, I'm going to have to stand up for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> you guys all just didn't read verse 47. Um, the alternate reading it says, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually the literal. Yeah, I didn't look up the words, <laughs> because i was not to for this discussion. Maybe <laughs> we so for Jacob, I did. I did and in the margin, literally complete. So I'm going to argue his mother loved him, yes, but when I hear and read about somebody who was a peaceful manly, because I'm thinking contemplative, artistic, and I like the word complete because um, the cultural manly man, the athletic guy and all that, is missing a large part of what God created. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean everybody has to do the same, but there is a balance to that. Yeah. And on the other side of the the spectrum, when you start taking into account um, the contemplative nature and the artistic nature, there is more a complete... Worldview, perhaps, yeah. and, and I think that's why the
0: word "complete" is used. Yeah, yeah, and I absolutely agree. And 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 some commentators use the word "complete" there, and some commentators use the word "civilized." Now, just thank you, guys. Those of you guys who are married, what would you have been like by this point in your life if you hadn't gotten married? <laughs> you know, I would be, I'm afraid, a lot like Esau.
3: <laughs>
0: I'd be crass. I'd be more impulsive than I am now, which is a terrifying thought, you know.
3: I think richer. <laughs> <laughs> I know
0: I would have Yeah, I would definitely not have been richer. I definitely would not have been richer. <laughs> because Yeah. So well, yeah, you kind of get that idea, but I, I really do like that word "complete." He's he's not a wimp, and we'll find out he's a great rancher. We're going to find that out when he goes up and goes to work for Laban, right? He's a great rancher. Okay, he really knows how to raise livestock. Okay, so he, he's not just a he's not a wimp. And when we think "Mama's boy," which is the first thing that comes to my mind when I read this passage, you know, when we think "Mama's boy," we think of a wimp, but he's no wimp. He is a complete man. He has the qualities of manliness with with the additional qualities of, of being civilized. And it's interesting that you use the term contemplative because that's the very way we were thinking about who a few chapters ago. Isaac. So all of a sudden we see that this... Quality of contemplative nature that, that we find in Isaac is in Jacob, the son whom he does not favor. And on the other hand, we have this go get him, independent, whatever Esau, who does he sound like? Sounds like Rebecca. Remember Rebecca, the type A personality? Okay. And so suddenly we discover, I think, and here I don't want to fall into pop psychology like I say, but I think we discover something. Just like in marriage, opposites attract. I think in our children, opposites attract. And and it's easy for us to find ourselves inclined to favor one child or another just because of the way our temperaments and our personalities are. And so that's exactly the trap that Rebecca and, and Isaac fall into.
2: Rick, I was thinking one thing. I wondering why. He saw when he came in, being a big hunter and didn't come in and oh, give me some soup to go and I'm going to take it with me. And, and, and maybe because Jacob wasn't going out, he couldn't do that. So, you know, he, he knew he couldn't
0: overpower him. That's a good
2: point. So, yeah. He was too weak for him. I don't know how long he did yeah. yeah. for <laughs> I mean think, I'm thinking of kids and brothers.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't have said please. I wouldn't have said please to my brother. I would have, I would have just grabbed it and run. I was the littlest one, so I would have had to run, but I would have grabbed it.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, 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 we'll get to all that. You two people keep trying to hurry me on this lesson. Okay, but but we got to go back and talk about this thing Ginger want to talk about, which is this favoritism, right? And we're going to encounter this again in Scripture. We're going to encounter it in this story. In the story of Jacob. And even though even though Jacob should have seen the destructive nature of favoritism in his own life and in his own family, he turns around and commits the same problem, the same sin with his own children. He doesn't learn the lesson. And And... One of the things I think we have to reflect on and think about in this passage, or from this passage, is that while favoritism may be the product of the natural inclinations that we have, that that I mean, our kids are different. They're all different. I've had five of them, and they're as different as the, you know as they can be. And so, so in our natural self, it's very easy to be more. To find it easier to relate, shall we say, to one than to the other. And and oftentimes it's the one who's really different than us that we find it the most easiest to relate to. And the one that's the most like us is the one that grates on us and and, and offends us and drives us crazy, okay? But that's in the natural man. And if we learn anything from this passage or from this uh, aspect of the passage, if we learn anything from this aspect of the passage, it should be the wickedness and the sin of parents showing favoritism to their children. And we see how utterly destructive... Now, I don't know in this case which came first, the chicken or the egg here, okay? I mean, there's a lot of conflict between these boys. And... And, and there, was, there was struggle in the womb. Now, we did see quite clearly there was no sin involved in that. God is very specific that they had not sinned when they were in the womb. Okay? He says that very specifically in the New Testament. So there was no sin in their struggle in the womb. But we see the, the struggle between those two guys started clear back before they were born. Okay? And, and so they, they were at each other's throats from the outset. But I cannot help but think that the favoritism showed by the parents exacerbated that problem. And intensified that problem, as as Ginger was mentioning. uh, Yeah, you know, you you have to think about those things. You have to wonder about that, because. You know, he loves Esau. Esau's his favorite. Esau brings home the game he loves to eat. You know, and and then he has this oracle that his wife got. You know, and th- there's got to be some conflict there. And I, I, you know, I don't know what all he was thinking about that, but 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 it was but it is pretty clear when it comes when we get to the point where it comes down, he's going to give the blessing. It's very clear he's intent on giving the blessing to Esau. Even though God had spoken otherwise.
2: What's the difference between a blessing and
0: a We're going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, we're going to get to that. Uh, so, one of the things we need to remember, though, about this thing about favoritism, and if we try to wrestle with it, and I tell you, if if I hadn't had the wife I had, my poor kids, they would have been really messed up, you know, because. Uh, Because, you know, I I didn't want to show favoritism to my kids. I want to treat them all fair, which to me meant treat them all equally. You can't treat your children equally. That's stupid. I mean, I didn't know it was stupid. So when, you know, when it came Christmas time and we were buying, you know, we have five kids. okay. so when it came Christmas time and it came time to buy presents for our kids, you know, in my mind, they all had to have the same number of presents. Because, you know, once they came out on Christmas morning and, you know, looked under the tree, they were going to compare and they were going to say, did I, you know, did I give you know, get any presents as my brother? Did I give any presents? Yep. So they all had, had the same number of presents. My wife was very determined to convince me that that was stupid. They don't need a different number of presents. I mean, they don't need the same number of presents. They need to be treated according to what they need and according to what they deserve. That's how our children need to be treated. We don't treat our children all the same. And avoiding the sin of favoritism doesn't mean treating our children all the same. It means raising up a child in the way he should go. And whatever that means for the child is going to be different from what it means to his brother or his sister. Okay. And when you look at the contrast between these two personalities of Isaac, or excuse me, of Esau and Jacob, they obviously need to be raised differently they needed a different emphasis in their lives. They needed different things from their parents. But the one thing they didn't need was obvious partiality. And that's what they got. And so they didn't get what they did need was careful discernment of their character and their personality and appropriate discipline and love. That's what they needed. They didn't get that. And what they didn't need, they did get, which was partiality. And it ripped the family apart. It is such a sad story when we get to that point where Jacob is sent off thinking he's going to be gone for a few days and his mother never sees him again. And he's gone for 20 years. All because parents were unwilling to do what they needed to do with their children. Well, so, so then we get to the story of the pot of stew. So Isaac, uh, Esau, Jacob, excuse me, Jacob makes this pot of stew, and Esau comes in. And what does he say? Well, that's not quite what he said. He said he's about to die. Give me some what? Give me some of that red stuff there. Now, guys, just yeah. <laughs> careful, Ginger. <laughs> just get the picture. You come home from work. You've been out. You've been out working hard all day. Whatever you are doing, been doing, you come home. You're absolutely famished. You walk in the house. Your wife has put together a great dinner. You know, I don't know what you like. You know, I think probably one of my favorites is roast beef mashed potatoes. You know, the old farm meal. You know, I I grew up around the farm, and I wasn't my dad wasn't a farmer, but I grew up in farm. You know, that's that's my type of meal. You know, Uh, I'll take that over a steak any day of the week. But you know, so you come in the house, and the wife's put all her work into this meal, and it's you know, and it's you know, it's a great deal, and it. And and it's that roast beef dinner you, you just love, you know, and you walk in and you smell it. Oh, yeah, I'm so hungry. And you walk in the kitchen and go, give me some of that brown stuff. <laughs> How's that going to go over? See what I mean about him being crass? Yeah, he's, a, he's a jerk. He's just a jerk. Yeah, not a nice biblical term there. Okay. He did, say please. he did say please. Yeah, I think he said please because he knew he couldn't get away with just demanding it. But, but I, I don't know. Maybe he's trying to be nice. But, but he isn't very nice in the way he asks. And if I said that to my wife, I would not be eating what was prepared. I'd be eating cereal for dinner. <laughs> you know, my wife is very sensitive to this issue about what I think about the food that she prepared. What I say about the food she prepares, even if it's not my favorite, you know. And uh, and so. Uh, he just wasn't very civilized. But now comes the really instructive part. What is Jacob's response?
3: What is his response?
0: What is his response? What is his response? What did he say? Where did that come from? Okay, stop and think about it this way. When Esau comes in the house, what's on his mind? (laughs) Satisfaction of his physical want. And so he asks for this bowl of soup. And Jacob's response is, sell me your birthright. What's on Jacob's mind? Yeah.
1: Or he knew, I, or like a politician. Not at all, <laughs> that he, knew, he
3: thought of it for
1: years and years and years and knew the way
0: and go fall like all. I have no doubt he thought about it for years. Sure. This didn't this didn't just come out, out of the blue. Now, I don't know if he knew he was going to get the opportunity right here. You know, I don't know that if he knew his brother was going to happen to come in from the field today. And, you know, uh, he may have. I don't know. But one thing is clear. There's been something on Jacob's mind for many, many years. And it's been eaten at him for years. And that is he wants the promise of God. He wants God's blessing on his life. Now, he's not thinking about it in those terms, is he? (laughs) He's not thinking about it in such spiritual terminology, of course, because he's operating in the flesh. But he knows what he wants. He wants what only God can give. Yeah, but it wouldn't have gotten him the birthright. (laughs) And that's the priority here. See, everybody's, upper, everybody's focused on themselves. And the one thing Jacob hasn't learned yet is that until he gets the blessing from God, it's not going to be satisfying. And he's going to get the birthright here. And in a couple chapters, he's going to get the blessing. But it's not going to, it's not going to satisfy him. Even after he has the birthright and the blessing, he goes away for 20 years and he comes back and he, and he encounters the, the pre-incarnate Christ there on the riverbank and he wrestles with him. What does he ask for? He asks for the blessing. Because he knows that everything else he's gotten up so, so far by his manipulation and his scheming hasn't... Hasn't met his name. David, what were you going to say? So, with my question
2: is, would Jacob have still got the blessing that God had promised to have known not get accepted? Because God had already promised How, it. how
0: could he not have? God had spoken it. How could he not have eventually gotten it? And the answer is, yeah, he would have. Because God had spoken. And whether, whether the oracle was prescriptive or descriptive, it was the Word of God. It was set in concrete. It was going to happen. And that's the thing with the promises of God. They're the promises of God, folks. Why do we manipulate? Why do we rely on the arm of flesh? Why are we always struggling to grab and get whatever we can get in life? When we have the promise of God, it's set in concrete. And that's the tragic thing about the life of Jacob. Jacob. Is that he makes his own life miserable. He makes the life of everybody around him miserable. He makes his life of his children miserable. His son ends up exiled into Egypt for many years and he thinks he's dead. All of that is because Jacob refused to believe the promise of God.
2: That's the wonder if Abraham did not tell him the story. Okay, I got the promise of God and I tried to solve it my way and it didn't work.
0: Sure, he knew that. So he had to have known that.
2: Okay, but that doesn't really apply to these. He's got this Uncle
0: Ishmael off there yeah. running. You yeah, know, he knows he's got Ishmael for an uncle. He knows all this. But I know all this too and I still operate in the flesh. Well, so... Uh, so, Jacob... and And, and this is... This is the striking difference, and we see this with Esau. And we focus so much, of course, on what Esau does, and we ought to, because that's the point of the story. Esau sells his birthright, and the summer, and the summation of the story, the summation of the significance of the story, is there in the last phrase, which is what? Esau despised his birthright. Esau despised his birthright. So, really, what it comes down to is the real contrast between these two guys. It's not all these things about their temperament and their personality and one was loved by dad and one was a mama's boy. That's not really the important difference. The really important difference is that to one, the promise and the blessing of God meant nothing. And to the other, although he operated so much in the flesh, the promise and the blessing of God was all he wanted. And it was everything he wanted. And he could not be satisfied until he had it. And, and in this respect, the life of Jacob is an encouragement to me. Because I see how much God worked with Jacob. Because he knew what Jacob wanted. And even though Jacob stumbles and gropes and does all this stupid, evil stuff, and even though his life is so miserable and at the end of his life we'll see at the very end of his life he says few and unpleasant have been my days that's his summary of his life a stark contrast to the summary of Abraham's life so even all that even though all that is true about Jacob the one thing about Jacob is he wanted God's blessing and apart from God's blessing he knew he wouldn't be satisfied, and so he seeks it, and he desires it. Well, in in the last couple of minutes we have here this morning, we we've, we've really looked at this pretty much from from God's I mean from man's perspective. We've thought about it from man's perspective, but I want to just back off for a minute and think about it from God's perspective. We look at this story and we look at these events and we see Esau coming in and, and he's, oh, what's the birthright to me? Yeah, and we think, yeah, you're stupid. You know, it's everything. Yeah. But just stop for a minute and place yourself, I don't mean to be sacrilegious here, but place yourself in God's place. How did God feel at that moment? when Esau said, I'm about to die. What is the birthright to me? Uh, Mike asked the question, what's the difference between the birthright and the blessing? And it's very clear from this story that the main parties involved, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau, all see them as two distinct things. That the birthright... And the blessing are two distinct things. So we see it dealt with in two distinct places in the story, right? We have the birthright dealt with here, and later we have the blessing. But turn for a minute over to Hebrews chapter 12. And we will see how God views them. In Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 16, he says, uh, we'll begin in verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness opening, uh, springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. What's he talking about there? He's talking about what we've just been studying, right? Now, notice what he says. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to what? Inherit what? The blessing. He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And so we discover that though the parties involved all saw them as distinct, God saw them as one and the same. And they are inextricably linked. That you cannot have the birthright without the blessing. and You can't have the blessing without the birthright. Now, the parties involved, they think about it different and they're dealing with it as though they're different. But in God's mind, they're the same. And God actually refers to him, to Esau, as having forfeited the inheritance of the blessing. And so, this blessing and inheritance, this blessing and birthright are all into interwoven together, are inextricably linked together. And so as God is looking on this situation, as God is looking down on this thing, what Esau is rejecting is not only his birthright, not only the claim to all the wealth and things that is Isaac's, but he is rejecting the very promise of God that he would be the means by which the world would experience salvation. Have you ever had some, something that was precious to you and you gave it to somebody else because you loved them? And because you wanted to give them this really important, meaningful thing to you and then have them disregard it? Be totally indifferent to it? I'm I'm sure you probably have. I know I have. As I was thinking about this yesterday, I could think of of two instances. One of them happened probably 25 years ago. And I can remember really giving thought to buying this particular item for someone. And I wanted to show them uh that I cared and that I that I, that I loved them and I cared for them and and I wanted to communicate that. And and I went out of my way and and I thought, this will do it. And And I gave it to them. And they just took it and they never said another word about it. I never ever saw any indication that they ever cared one whit about this gift that I had given to them. And as I was thinking about that yesterday, it still hurt. How do you think God felt when Esau said, what use is it to me? and i and I was just rebuked in my heart, I think how oftentimes God pours out His gifts to us, his riches of his wealth, his love to us, we just shrug it off, we just take it for granted, or oftentimes think it's no use at all. Is it any wonder? The scriptures emphasize this issue of thanksgiving so much. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, when he's talking about the degradation of the human race, one of the primary factors that leads to God abandoning the human race is their failure to give thanks. And as I sat down at the table this morning to eat my breakfast... I have to ask myself am I really grateful for this? I mean, we thank God every meal for our meal but does it come from our hearts? Or are we just dismissing the gifts of God as if they're of little significance? And when we do what does that do to the heart of God? Well, next week we're going to go on and look at the stories, more of the story of Isaac and and, uh, go on from there. So we'll get together next week. Thanks.